Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great episode we have today. After my last episode, where I talked with MEP Barry Andrews about the Republic of Ireland, I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast today Jane Morris and Susanna Karp. Jane Morris is a former Deputy Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, former head of the European Commission office in Northern Ireland and co-founder of the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. Jane is very active in promoting Northern Ireland in the European Union and she's right now campaigning to get Northern Ireland to be granted an honorary European Union Association as a European place of global peace building. She's also author, and we're going to discuss it on a podcast, of the Celtic Protocol, a way to solve the problem of the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And to join us on the conversation, I'm very happy to welcome back to the podcast Susanna Karp. Susanna is a political scientist and climate policy specialist who has researched and written on the topic of the peace and reconciliation process in Northern Ireland. She is also a board director for the European Citizens Involvement and Trust Foundation, also known as ESIT Foundation, as well as serving as a steering committee member on the board of the European Alternative. And now, with no further ado, I bring you Jane Morris and Susanna Karp. I'm here with Jane Morris and Susanna Karp. Ladies, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you, Ricardo, for inviting us. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you both here. And we already had the pleasure of having Susanna on the pod. Uh, this was episode 57, where we talked about climate change, migration and human rights. And today she will be co-hosting the podcast with me. But before we get to the main point of today's conversation, Jane, please tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path? took to get to the point that we are now talking on the podcast? Well, I start by saying I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and that was before the, the troubles, the, 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 the war, civil war that broke out and was here for 30 years. But I was a teenager when that happened. And I suppose my life's ambition was I always to, I wanted to be the first woman prime minister of the United Kingdom. A slight problem with that was that Margaret Thatcher beat me to it. Uh, so I had to change directions. <laughs> and I went I went into journalism and I worked as a journalist in Brussels for a French press agency for six years, traveling the world. And then I came back to BBC Belfast and it was BBC Belfast in the 80s, the height of our troubles, where I really saw the cold face of what was going on here. Um, and it was at that moment that I decided I had to do more than just report on the troubles. I had to do something about it. So we set up our own political party, uh, the first all women's political party, I'm told, in the world ever to get elected representation. The Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. We set it up. I got elected. We went into the Good Friday peace negotiations. Two of us got elected to the assembly and I was deputy speaker. So I suppose that in a nutshell is how I got to where I am now. Jane, thank you so much for that intro. Uh, before we get into the main topic of conversation, we have to talk about Brexit. So tell us your assessment of the effects of Brexit on the field. Well, I suppose I want to first of all look at the... Northern, from the Northern Ireland perspective. Um, 
I just I've often described the the best day of my career was the signing of the Good Friday peace agreement, mm-hmm. which ended the 30 years of, of civil war in this country. Mm-hmm. And to bring it more up to date, the worst day of my career was the day the Brexit referendum announced our departure from mm-hmm. the European Union. Now, for a lot of people, so that's back in 2016. For a lot of people, you know, that just brought us you know, a huge depression and an anger annoyance. But what it did for me was it brought the fire back to my belly. And I have been fighting against Brexit ever since. And I'm delighted because it's given me something to fight for. And I've been trying to get us back in to the European Union. Uh, I was on the Remain side, etc. So I put out an idea, which has actually become the protocol, but I can't claim uh, uh, all responsibility is mine. I called for Northern Ireland to stay in the EU as part of the UK. I got thousands of signatures. I lobbied the Brussels and Barnier and, and London and Dublin and nonstop. And actually, the Northern Ireland Protocol is very, very similar to what mm-hmm. I requested. So um, uh, that's where we are at the moment. And I'm still trying to come up with creative solutions to the major problems this country's facing. The other problem now is the reversal of Brexit, rejoining the European Union. (laughs) I wonder, is that on the cards? Well, as we normally say on the business, stay tuned. But now, Susanna, please take it away. Thank you. Jane, thanks for sharing your insights. And uh, as you mentioned, you were interested in creative solutions. I can say I'm not surprised. I have uh, researched the Women's Coalition in the past and also your work uh, when you were deputy speaker of the first Northern Irish Assembly. So I know you have been a champion of many creative ideas. And I was wondering, uh, presuming that we're not actually discussing a Northern Ireland rejoining the, the European Union or the UK rejoining the European Union, presuming we're actually in the scenario in which Brexit has occurred. Uh, And we have this protocol that's very uh, hotly debated in in both Brussels and in London. I was wondering whether you saw any alternatives to the current protocol and also maybe just to to gather your thoughts on, so uh, your ideas on the protocol and secondly, whether you see European citizenship as one of those solutions, since it is a very interesting element that sort of results from the protocol, which is that all citizens from Northern Ireland are actually eligible for European citizenship. And what can we do with that? How can we be creative with that? Thank you very much, Susanna. And I'll start with your last point because it's absolutely essential and very few people are talking about it. The Good Friday Agreement, that was 1998, allows people in Northern Ireland to be British or Irish or both. And that means we have the right to be Europeans and therefore protected as European citizens. And that is all of the people of Northern Ireland. Now, the fascinating thing about that is there's all sorts of debates over trade, etc. But there isn't a proper debate on citizenship. And there is a lack of recognition that every single inhabitant of Northern Ireland has the right to be European. And the fascinating thing about that as well is there's an there's been a record number of British citizens outside of Northern Ireland as well who have applied for Irish citizenship. And I'm sure you've you've seen that because they want 
the rights, uh, their European citizenship's rights. So that's a hugely important point. The second point to get to get to your, and if you would want me now to explain my ideas about the protocol, to, to slightly explain what the problem with the protocol is in Northern Ireland, is that nationalist stroke Irish people in Northern Ireland, citizens in Northern Ireland, uh, support the protocol because they mainly supported uh, the Remain side of the of the Brexit debate. Protestant Unionist British mainly opposed what were behind the the out Brexit vote, so they opposed the protocol because that made them feel half in, half out. And the basic argument was the 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 fact that the Irish government managed to negotiate ensuring there's no border on the island of Ireland and ended up with the so-called border being put <clears throat> in the Irish Sea. And of course, this angered unionists, you know, how dare the Irish put the border between us and, and GB. So that has been the basic emotional, if you like, reaction, the, the dilution of Britishness. So I had to come up with a creative solution to that. If the protocol was extended to Scotland, that would move the border from the Irish Sea to Hadrian's Wall or the border between England and Scotland, and therefore remove the toxicity of the of the debate about the constitutional question. Because if Scotland's in the in the protocol, then there's no there's no reduction in our Britishness. And anyway, Scotland half or nearly perhaps half of Scottish want a border between themselves and England. Anyway, I was wondering from the perspective, the sheer perspective of democracy and the meaning of the vote in the referendum from 2016, if we recall that both Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to stay inside the European Union, um, how do you see your proposal to actually fit in from a democratic theory perspective? Absolutely. Thank you very much. And you're totally right. It is what I should put as the number one point in my protocol extension argument. Yes, Scotland and Northern Ireland voting to remain in the EU. Now, every time you bring up that argument, the anti-protocols say, oh, but it was a UK-wide vote. Oh, it's, it's, it's so convoluted, the, the political discussion in Northern Ireland. You've studied it, you know it well, but there's not those that, that those cannot understand what's going on here. But the fact that Northern Ireland and Scotland voted to remain makes a huge justification for this argument. Now, there is another problem which has been raised, which is that treating Northern Ireland as a special case, which the European Union has been doing for decades because of our peace process, the need to preserve it because of the Good Friday Agreement. So it was absolutely right that that the European Union protects our peace process. And by the way, the peace programme that the EU set up in the 90s is the only programme that has survived Brexit. So that's further support of Northern Ireland, that EU is supporting us. But there's so much anti-European feeling, and shall I say in England in particular, that nobody's listening to the pro-European voices. Jane, I do have now a question that is more about the political sphere following Susanna point more related to the, the democratic process. It looks from the outside that the DUP, which is the Democrat Unionist Party, 
they are losing ground and voters in Northern Ireland. And this relates to that British sentiment that you just mentioned. So how does it look to you? It goes back to Brexit and then the protocol. The, 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 the British sentiment in Northern Ireland, they are using the protocol to, to justify bringing Stormont down. We, the, storm, the, the Northern Ireland Assembly is suspended as we speak. And they say that it's because of the protocol. Um, so they won't go back into Stormont until, until the protocol is changed. There's been ongoing discussions about trying to change it. So, Jane, uh, given that Boris Johnson has just resigned as Prime Minister of the UK, how do you see this uh, factoring into the wider calculations um, that you were talking about just earlier? How will this uh, impact on the DUP's stance on the protocol, given that the DUP and the Conservative Party have actually been very closely aligned on the issue? Do you see this changing in any way in, in, in the next couple of weeks and months? Well, thank you for that question and your question, Susanna, which is how will this, what's happening as we speak, how will this affect Northern Ireland? And, you know, it's pantomime politics, I'm sorry to say. I, so I don't want to go into the logic of how it should or shouldn't do it. And I think I think playing the, the pantomime back is the most important way to do this. And, you know, things like extending the protocol to Scotland is a way of saying, you know, these. The, if you're playing politics, we can play it too. I'm sure that hasn't answered properly your question, but as you can, as you can see, the infuriating mess that the United Kingdom has got all of us in. So we are seeing that indeed there are some significant changes being made. We can expect some alliances to be changing. Suspect that, for example, there will be a deprioritization of the protocol issue, or will the DUP keep it up on the agenda? Uh, do you see the government continuing to be suspended uh, as a result or so helping us out, let's say, try to help us out from yeah. <laughs> the continental European side to make sense of what this means and how we could strategize and, and plan around it? OK, well, go back to the pantomime politics. <laughs> the issue at the moment is for time immemorial, the Ulster Unionist, the Unionist side of the equation in Northern Ireland has always had the majority and has always had uh, the upper hand, if you like. For the first time within the Northern Ireland Assembly, there's a joint leadership, but they call them the first and deputy first lead, uh, minister. And for the first time, our first minister, thanks to the uh, number of seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly elected, so our first minister is Sinn Féin. That is a first for Northern Ireland. So the normal thing would be the DUP, which is the second biggest party, would take the deputy first minister's seat. But there's a lot of people out there are saying that the, prot the protocol argument was just an excuse because they didn't want to deputise to a Sinn Féin first minister. And that goes back to the whole complication of the first and deputy first minister being equal positions. So it's all about imagery. It's all about pantomime politics. You know, so are they going to be ready to go back in and to be seen to deputize to Sinn Féin? Oh, it's 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 real watershed moments in in, in these island these islands, the British Irish Isles, you know, 
And the, the, fa the fact about Sinn Féin, for example, I mean, th there's an Irish election, I think it's next year, and I don't follow Irish politics so much. <clears throat> but if Sinn Féin tops the polls in the south of Ireland and tops the polls in the north of Ireland, there's more momentous moments and big things need to be thought about. <laughs> Jane, this is such an important point that you just brought right now. I was very fortunate to be in Dublin for the All the Party Congress and there I had the pleasure to talk with MEP Barry Andrews from uh, the Fianna Fáil party in Ireland and we talked about this. We talked about the possibility of having Sinn Féin in power both in Northern Ireland but also in the Republic of Ireland. And the latest polls actually show that the number of people that are open to what is called the border poll is growing. So what is your take on this so important question? And that also relates to something else that happens in the UK, which is the, possible, the possibility of we having a Scottish independence referendum. So please tell us what, your, what is your analysis of this situation? It, it's a totally fascinating moment. And you're absolutely right. I would suggest, and this is this is in my gut, I would suggest that Scotland holds the key. Now, if Scotland has requested a referendum next year, and if if it is allowed by whoever takes over from Boris Johnson, if mm. they permit uh, uh, an independence, and if independence goes ahead, then I, I, I like to think of, of these islands, uh, of, of England and Wales, looking like a headless chicken with Scotland gone. If you can envisage that, it's sort of like headless. So, and there's a big, big question here in Northern Ireland, because the people of Northern Ireland, unionists in Northern Ireland, feel themselves, I believe, much more connected with the Scots than with mm. the English and that's something, again, isn't properly debated in, in a, a bit like the citizenship argument is that, you know, that Scotland goes. It, I mean, and again, back in the debate in, in Dublin, for example, is that they're sort of being more careful about their demands for a border poll. There's absolutely no doubt that had Brexit, had Brexit happened without the protocol, there would be shouting from the rooftops for uh, a referendum on Irish unity. But now, because of the protocol, that has slightly dampened down those calls. They will happen, but I think there's wisdom south of the border in that, you know, we don't we want to learn the lessons from Brexit. We can't go into the sort of shambles that has just been experienced by the UK coming out of the EU. So the same will go for an Irish unity referendum, that we need to tread carefully, take much more time to consider. And interestingly enough, if Scotland leads the way, I think it could, I mean, for example, I've been, I describe myself as a European unionist. That's <laughs> called constructive ambiguity, which the Good Friday Agreement was brilliant at. I, I really think that the two things, I've always supported Northern Ireland staying in the UK. So that's the part of unionist part of me. But what is, what's made me think twice is two things. <laughs> so now with Boris about to go, will Brexit go? Then we could be comfortable in the UK or would that make us more comfortable in a united Ireland? I, I prefer Scotland, Ireland and Northern Ireland to come together in a new type arrangement. 
This is fascinating, Jane. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, as I've actually studied the region and I understand how long uh, it takes to actually build peace and have reconciliation occur, I understand that it's also important to, to tread carefully, as you said, uh, and take our time and just be uh, absolutely inclusive in the debates that we're having, hear all the arguments. Um, so in that sense as well, I wonder if we can extrapolate to the European level. And since at this point in time, Northern Ireland is inside the internal market and citizens of Northern Ireland have access to the four freedoms uh, or more freedoms, I should say. <laughs> Since that is the case, should we not also ask that there is political representation for Northern Ireland at the European level uh, precisely to actually ensure, you know, that there is accountability uh, and that there is uh, a direct link to citizens um, in place for, for the foreseeable future. So is this something that, that, you know, while the processes that you mentioned are unfolding, we will see what happens in, in London, we will see what happens with Scotland next year, but would it make sense now to also have a strong push to give Northern Ireland as a region with its complexities representation at the European Union level? Absolutely agree. And in fact, that was something that what was used in the unionist argument against the protocol. They say, how can a foreign, how can we be ruled by a foreign government without representation? Now, that's their line. I will never call a, 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 the EU a foreign government because we are European citizens. But yes, you're right. If there could be representation. Now, I don't know if one of these all European parties could try to to set up in, in elections representation from Northern Ireland. There have been attempts to keep MEPs from Northern Ireland. There, there were. I don't I haven't followed them very closely, but in Dublin, attempts to keep our representation. For example, I was on the European Economic and Social Committee, which is the civic forum, if you like, of the European Union. And even representation at that level would be would be useful. So in the Parliament in the EESC, in the Committee of the Regions. But uh, nobody's nobody's fighting for that because people don't really... I mean, there I'll go, I'll go to the basic problem of the European Union was it doesn't do a good job at its own communications. I mean, for example, here's my another pet subject of mine. For example, uh, the two parties... Uh, who helped make the Good Friday Agreement here and peace happen were America and the European Union. But America gets all the glory. Everyone says America did it, America helped. Nobody really says too much about what Europe did and the fact that they did differently. America used the megaphone diplomacy. It was all about visas for people and, and big parties at quite and presidents coming over and big, big diplomatic efforts. Whereas EU does it by grassroots, bringing together people at the grassroots, letting get funding things, projects cross-border, cross-community, trying to get peace and reconciliation. The EU and, and US do things differently, but US gets all the glory. The EU needs to start getting the glory. And if the EU had started, had, had been pushing what it does well and does good with its communications, Brexit may never have happened. Ladies, this has been truly a fascinating conversation and having you both here to give us your insights, it's valuable. 
And uh, Susanna, you did a great job co-hosting today. So thank you so much for that. Jane, please tell our listeners where they can follow your work online and know more about the Celtic Protocol. Uh, perfect. Um, I have to declare myself, uh, I declared myself as a, uh, a European Unionist, but I'm also a digital dinosaur. <laughs> so asking, asking uh, how you can find me, uh, janemorris.com. You can follow me on that. I'm on Twitter. I have no idea what my handle is, if that's the name for it. Um, I'm on, but I, I actually, I'm on Facebook as well, but I far prefer to do politics on Twitter rather than Facebook. On my web, uh, janemorris.com, you can see my article towards a Celtic protocol. And that gives the details of my proposal. And I've been speaking at a few events in, in on Zoom in Scotland and in Brussels. And the problem about new creative ideas is everyone pats you on the head and says, well done, great stuff, brilliant, let's wait and see. Nobody fights enough to do things about it. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be waiting and seeing anymore. We should be marching <laughs> and acting and uh, I, I think you can tell that uh, that uh, in fact I, I love a challenge if, if if everything was all good I'd have nothing to do I'm going to put all the links on the podcast show notes and today we have a special uh, last word from Susanna before we say our goodbye so please Susanna take it away well, it's a bit difficult to close uh, such an interesting session. Uh, I should say that I've had the pleasure of being in conversations and interviews with both of you separately. So I'm just extremely grateful that uh, we have actually managed to make this happen as, as a three-way conversation. So Jane, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to join Ricardo and myself on the podcast and Ricardo thank you so much for hosting us this has been excellent and I do feel energized after uh, Jane's strong push for for marching <laughs> so I do think uh, we should stay involved and uh, following this topic because it's one of the most interesting topics in Europe I would say I have been talking with Jane Morris and Susanna Karp ladies thank you so much for talking to me on the podcast and let's keep this conversation going here here lovely meeting you Cheerio. Thanks a lot. I'm back. And before we get into the usual send-off here on the podcast, we have a postscriptum today. As we're recording this conversation, as you probably notice, Boris Johnson was announcing his departure from number 10 Downing Street. So we recorded a little extra, and you can see the exasperation in the voice of Jane as we knew about his departure. So a little bit of how we do the sausage here in podcasting. Uh, but I think one of those problems might be resolved as we speak, because I believe Boris Johnson, our prime minister, might be on the verge of stepping down. <laughs> so that's so that's one problem possibly solved today. And I'm watching the, the news to see him coming out of Downing Street. That's one problem possibly solved today. Should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I'm today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. And the reason I have fought so hard in the last few days to continue to deliver that mandate in person was not just because I wanted to do so, but because I felt it was my job, my duty, my obligation to you to continue to do what we promised in 2019. And of course, I'm immensely proud of the achievements of this government from getting 
Brexit done, to settling our relations uh, with the continent, and in the last few months, leading the West in standing up for Putin's aggression in Ukraine. Oh, I don't want to, do you want to stop? Should I turn it down now? Boris Johnson, within the last five minutes, has just said he's resigning, but only as Conservative Party leader, not as Prime Minister. So that is an added complication. And the very funny thing about this announcement is that there's protesters outside and all you can hear in the background people singing, bye-bye, Boris, Boris, bye-bye. And that really turns it into the pantomime that it has been and that has been so infuriating, not just about politics in the United Kingdom, but also in Northern Ireland and even more so in Northern Ireland. You can hear the annoyance in my voice when I talk about it. I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this month of September. And we have a very busy week. On the 28th from 3 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Central European time, we have the Great Inflation 2.0 Unconference. Yes, I said it correctly. Unconference. This will be a World Cafe event where the discussion will focus on rising inflation and the actions of the European Central Bank. This event is in part a continuation of the work presented about inflation in issue 2 of the Future of Europe journal with the title Inflation Rising. This will take place at Arts 56 on 56 Avenue des Arts en Bruxelles. Then on the following day, the 29th from 2 to 4 p.m. Central Eastern Time, we have the ELF Working Group on Trade, Reconciling European Strategy Autonomy with Transatlantic Relations. This will happen at the Novotel Bruxelles of Grand Place. Then also on the same day and also on the same place, we have the ELF Working Group on Stage Integration for EU Enlargement, Milestones, Deadlines and Conditionality. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Yeah.